What's up, everybody? It's Pastor James. Welcome back to the Midweek Bible Study. It is Wednesday morning, and today is Ash Wednesday, which means it's the official start of the Lent season. And so Lent is basically the celebration leading up to the coming of Easter, and it gives Christians the opportunity to fast. And that means, if you don't know, that means to give up things uh, maybe a meal, maybe a type of food, maybe a hobby, maybe a TV show, um, something. You give it up and you spend that time you would normally spend on it or the effort or the thought or the desire in that to spend in prayer and focusing on the Lord. And um, I don't know if there's ever been a more appropriate time for us to fast and pray as we have a lot of crazy stuff going on around the world with Russia and Ukraine and just kind of all that being up in the air. Also, um, with our culture and society and the way that our morals are, are leaning to these days, uh, we have a lot to pray for for our society, and we have a lot to pray for in our community, in our church. Um, we just have a lot going on. A lot of people dealing with physical issues. We have a lot of spiritual things going on. And so, I ask you guys to join in. Our, our staff is doing this at the church. Uh, we always encourage every year our people to do this with us. And so if you feel led to, we would love for you to participate in Lent and giving up something and fasting from it and spending that time and effort and energy praying to the Lord um, and asking Him to work and move not only in our church, in our community, but in our world as a whole for Him to do great and amazing things. All right, so we're getting started in chapter 18 today. And we're going to see who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because the disciples are still asking this question and wondering who is in charge. So let's read together Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 through 5 and we'll get started. About that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. All right, we're going to stop right there. And um, we're going to talk a little bit. So that was verses 1 through 5. So... The disciples are still worried about um, what's going to happen, who's going to be in charge, even up until the bitter end. They want to know who is going to be the greatest, who's in charge, who has the authority. And you can kind of understand why. I mean, this is something that we question a lot whenever we, we go somewhere, when we join an organization, whenever we are interested in something. We always want to know who's in charge. Jesus has been telling them that he's not going to be with them forever, um, that he's about to die. And so they're still asking, who's the greatest? Which one of us is is the most important? And which one of us is going to be in charge? And they want to know the pecking order of things. And, and the pecking order is important in a worldly sense. But when you look at Jesus and his desires and his focus, Jesus isn't focused on a pecking order. Basically, God is the one who's in charge and everyone else is following God. All right, and they're trying to figure out something that really they just don't understand yet. They they just don't comprehend exactly what the kingdom of heaven is and how it's set up. And so, what Jesus does to convey the message is um, he calls over this little child and he uses this child as an example to explain who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is going to be. 
And actually, he first explains to them what they must do in order to even get into the kingdom of heaven. So that's really interesting, and you need to focus on that. Uh, first, you have to repent. If you even want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to repent of your sins. And apparently, from Jesus saying this, we can assume that there was sin among the disciples if Jesus was telling them that they must turn from their sins in order to even get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that might worry some of you, but I want you to think about this. We know that Judas had sin in his heart. He was mishandling the disciples' money regularly. He was taking some for himself. We read about that later on in Scripture. We also read um, later on, we haven't read it yet, but we will read later on how Judas will betray Jesus in order to receive money, 30 pieces of silver, um, for his betrayal. Um, Perhaps it could be that Judas alone was the reason why Jesus was saying this, but it very well could be that there were other disciples who had sins in their life. I mean, even the question of, okay, who is going to be the greatest, that somewhat leads to the interpretation that we could kind of assume that there's pride among them, that they want to know who's in charge, they want to know who's going to be the greatest, that there's probably pride among them. And pride is a sin. Pride leads to the fall of many, many people. And so... Perhaps this is why Jesus made statements like, if you can't be trusted with small things, you won't be trusted with large ones. And if you can't be trusted with earthly riches, who will trust you with the riches of heaven? Repentance is the key to be a child of God. If you don't repent of your sins, you can't be a child of God. And without repenting, we cannot have a relationship with God. So the other thing is, we must become like little children. And if we don't do these two things... We're not even going to get into the kingdom of heaven, much less be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So apparently, Jesus was communicating that at least one, if not more of them, needed to not be so worried about being the greatest and really just be worried about getting in first. So that's pretty cool to think about that the disciples weren't there yet. Okay, They were still growing and working their faith out and understanding who Jesus was and understanding the kingdom, that they really hadn't grasped all that yet. And I think sometimes for us as Christians, we lose sight of the fact that you know, we get frustrated because there's a lot of things we don't understand, we don't get, we haven't accomplished, we haven't reached these goals, or we haven't you know, overcome the sin yet. But really, our life is, is a process of us growing closer and closer to the Lord. And whatever sin we overcome or what with the help of Jesus Christ of course or whatever temptations or you know whatever point we move past however we mature in our faith when we wake up the next day there will always be something new to work on because we will never truly be perfect in this life so bringing us on to the next thing of what Jesus was saying he said you must become like little children but what exactly does this mean to be like little children Thankfully, we have verse 4 where Jesus calls us to become as humble as little children, um, and then we can be the greatest. So, in order to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, humility is apparently the key factor in being who God wants us to be. We must be willing to humble ourselves and be like children. We must, and, and think about this what do we expect children to do? What do good children do? They obey. They submit. They're innocent. And those three things kind of define what it means to be a child. Obedience, submissiveness, and innocence. 
And those are three things that adults really don't like to do. When you think about as an adult, how many adults do you know who just like, they like being obedient, they like being submissive, and they like being innocent. In fact, if you were to go up to an adult today and say, oh, you're so innocent, that's typically a negative connotation in how we speak to someone. We don't tell someone an adult that they're innocent in a way to compliment them. It's kind of demeaning. But what Jesus is saying is, you know, children are innocent. They're submissive. They're obedient. Good children should be, that is. And so if we want to be the greatest, then we have to be those things in order to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So for us, you have to understand that Jesus wants us to be like a child. He wants us to be his children. He wants us to be obedient to him. This is probably why one of the Ten Commandments says, Honor your father and mother. Well, how convenient is it that God is our heavenly father? And so we should be obedient, submissive, and innocent to things of the world. And, and Jesus goes on to add that not only must we become like little children, but you should also welcome children in and care for them. And Jesus says, anyone who welcomes them is welcoming me. And so in this moment, Jesus places a calling and responsibility on the lives of these disciples to welcome in and care for those who are unable to care for themselves. Now, this is huge because when you talk about being great and who's the greatest and you think about kings and royalty. One of the biggest things that you see about royalty is is that most kings and queens never cared for their own children. They actually had someone else raising their children for them because they didn't have time to raise their children. They had more important things to do. So if you want to be the greatest, Jesus is saying, then you have to bring in these these children, these orphans, these widows, people who are weaker than you, people who can't care for themselves, and you must care for them and welcome them in. And when you do that, you're doing it to me. And Jesus is the one who's saying that. And he says that when we care for them, we're doing it to Jesus himself. And this probably has more to do with the transformation that Christ does in our hearts and lives than anything. Because when you think about it as people, you know, it really is easy for us to despise, discredit, disregard, and dismiss people who are what we would think of as beneath us. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, some people have groups of people that they're more um, generous and merciful to. Um, and a lot of that has to do with like personal experience and, and maybe like family experience. So some people may be more um, uh, merciful and tolerant and patient with drug abuse while others have no use for it. Um, some people absolutely despise people who steal things while others it doesn't bother as much. Um, you know, same thing with lying. Some people absolutely hate people that lie and others it doesn't really bother them that much. A lot of it has to do with just like personal experience and what you grow up with and what you're accustomed to. And so when you look at people who are beneath us, okay, whether it be spiritually, whether it be socially, whether it be intellectually, um, whether it be financially, uh, you, you can look at this in many different ways. If there's someone who's underneath you, it really is easy for us to 
you know, just kind of dismiss them or ignore them in a lot of ways and focus on people who are your equals or higher than you because it's in pretty much everywhere in the world, but especially in America, we're always focused on climbing the ladder, doing the next best thing, making those connections and, you know, building relationships with other people to advance ourselves. But when you build relationships with people who are underneath you or are not as rich as you or not as powerful as you, you're not building relationships that are going to necessarily advance yourself. And that's pretty important for us to understand that when we do that, it really is an indication that God has transformed our hearts to not focus on what we can gain from relationships, but really what we can give in relationships. And for someone to welcome in people that are beneath them and to love on them and to care for them, it really is a sign that they've truly been transformed in the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus has called us to care for the people beneath us. I mean, James, the book of James says, true religion is caring for orphans and widows. Um, that's what it means to be a servant of God. If you really are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to care for these people because they can't do it themselves. So, long story short, the disciples wanted to know once again who's the greatest, and Jesus begins to teach them about humility and serving, and it's what we're called to do as Christians. So if you want to be the greatest, humble yourself and hang out with the least of these. That's basically what Jesus is saying. All right, let's read verses 6 to 11, and we'll finish up today because the next few verses are quite interesting, and we're going to talk about um, just pretty much one aspect rather than talk about all of them. We're just going to talk about one aspect of this passage that we're about to read. So let's read verse 6 to 11 together. It says, But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. All right. So let's just uh, get started. Let's get started. Jesus goes from explaining who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and then he goes on to address this aspect of not only sin, but causing other people to sin. And Jesus gets really stern in this. And so he, he makes a statement, if you cause one of these weak and helpless ones to sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck. Basically, that's a big rock, okay? Um, they used these massive rocks to grind up grain and things. It was called a millstone. It would weigh several hundred, if not close to a thousand pounds, and maybe even bigger according to where the millstone would be or you know what uh, meal it was used in. But they're enormous and they weigh a lot, and so to have it tied around your neck, you would surely drown. And so it would be better for you to drown in the sea than to do that. Uh, Coming from Jesus, that's a pretty serious statement. And the following verses are also stern warnings about the seriousness of sin and doing away with things that would cause you to sin. Uh, talking about cutting off your feet and gouging out your eyes. I mean, some of that stuff, let's be honest. Like, if you're listening to this today and you're not a Christian, that sounds crazy. If you are a Christian, 
you don't perceive it as being crazy because you've either like you've come to understand what it means or you've grown up hearing it your whole life and so you haven't thought a whole lot about it but the big question in this is is jesus being literal or is jesus being figurative when he says these things and this is a great question that i number one i got asked this all the time by my teenagers when i was doing youth ministry I would have so many kids come up. They were reading their Bibles for the first time. They would come up and say, look, I, you know, I read this. I come across this passage. Dude, is this for real? Does Jesus really expect us to do this? Uh, and, and the more adult question that I get is, is this literal or figurative? And basically what I've told the kids in the past and what I've told my adults now in adult ministry is that it's probably both like i believe that it's both and let me explain that to you before you kind of go crazy and you're like oh my gosh like we really got to cut our hands and feet off and gouge out our eyes and stuff like that that's not what i'm saying so so let's do this together first of all let's talk about what would happen if christians begin to go around and cut their arms off or their feet off or their gouge their eyes out what would happen what would people think about them at that point in time that would be considered self-mutilation, and self-mutilation is a major sign of deeper psychological issues that people deal with. There are people who self-mutilate, which is basically self-harm, and those people generally have an array of psychological issues, social issues, all kinds of different stuff. And if someone were to cut their own hand off or their foot or gouge out their eye, and the reason that they went around and told everyone that they did it was because they wanted to stop sinning against the Lord. More than likely, even the church would probably consider them to be insane and have them committed. And especially the rest of the world would too. So the idea of doing this doesn't seem to be the proper way of being a light in the darkness. Does that make sense? Like if you use like, man, I'm so committed to the Lord. I cut my hand off so I wouldn't sin. That's not a good witness for Jesus Christ. You're probably going to drive a lot more people away than you're going to attract in the name of Jesus. Okay. So let's talk about some other teachings that Jesus used and maybe we can kind of grab a better understanding of it. In Matthew chapter six, verse three, Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount and he tells the people who are listening but when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And so when you look at this, you have to ask yourself this question. Is it possible for me to do something without my other hand knowing what the other hand did? And, and in a sense, you have to realize that, yes, in this moment, this is a figurative passage because... Like your hands don't think, your hands don't see, but what's connected to both of them is your mind. Like you, your hands do what your mind tells them to do. And so if you want to pick up a pen, you reach down and pick up a pen. It's not the fact that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing, or your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing. This is kind of a figurative teaching. And so when you understand the fact that one hand doesn't necessarily know what the other one is doing but your mind is connected to both of them but jesus is using this as an example to say hey you shouldn't do good deeds for everyone to see you should do this in secret because your reward is going to be in heaven so the so 
understanding this is is that if if it's possible to do this, then, then it's just it's just a figurative thing. Like it's not it's not possible. So the knowledge of what your hand is doing is in the mind. And so think about this. Even if you were blind, all right, even if you couldn't see, you would still know what your hand is doing, and therefore the teaching from Matthew six three can be seen as figurative. So let's go back to cutting off hands and gouging out eyes. If you cut off your hand, do you still have the ability to sin? Well, if your hand was the one that was, let's just say, stealing something, then yes, you still have your other hand. If you gouge out your eye, can you still sin? Well, if your eye was looking at, let's just say, a pretty woman and lusting after her, then you still have another eye, and yes, you can still sin. And not only do you still have another hand, for example, to steal something with, or another eye to lust with, but if you cut off your hand and you don't steal anymore, you still have your eyes to see things that you would want and covet, which is still breaking the Ten Commandments. And then even if you gouge out your eyes, so and let's just say you gouge out, you cut off both hands so that you can't steal anything, and then you gouge out both eyes so that you can't see things to covet, and you can't look at women to lust after, you still have a mind and a heart that would allow you to sin because... The images that you've already seen, the things that you desire, the sin that's in your life is actually in your heart and your mind. Your eye looks at what your mind tells it to look at. You know, you 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 scan the world to look at different things, to look at things that you want to look at, to look at things that you desire to look at. Your hands reach out to touch things that you desire to touch, to grab things you desire to grab, and to take things that you desire to take. And so the sin is not necessarily tied to the parts of your body that actually performs the sin, but the sin is in the heart and the mind. And so then if you say, okay, well, I'm willing to do whatever it takes not to sin, and you carve out your heart and you carve out your mind, then you're just committing suicide and not self-mutilation. So I believe... It is safe to say in this passage that the teaching is figurative and at the same time, it's literal. So we pulled one teaching of Jesus to show how this passage could be seen as figurative. So let's pull another passage to see how Jesus is also being literal with it. So let's take a passage from a few weeks back. This is Matthew chapter 16, verses 23 through 26, and we will start with verse 23 to give you the context of what's happening before Jesus makes a statement. So Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will have it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? So in this passage, we see that Jesus has just announced that he is going to die. All right, And this is why Peter says, Lord, forbid this would ever happen to you. And this is why Jesus looks at Peter and says, You're the devil. Stop talking to me. Get away from me. He calls Peter Satan for trying to discourage him away from God's will. And immediately after he rebukes Peter, he looks at his disciples and says to all of them, If you want to be mine, 
You must follow me where I'm going. Where was Jesus going? Jesus was going to the cross to die. You must be willing to give up your life. This is both figuratively with worldly things and literally with your actual life. We see this lived out as every single disciple except for John was put to death for their faith in Christ. They literally sacrificed their physical life in order to have faith in Jesus Christ and proclaim that faith to the world. And so in this moment, you see where Jesus is calling his disciples, if you want to be where I am, you got to follow me. You got to go with me. You got to die with me. You got to give up your physical life with me. And what you see later on in the New Testament is how Christians were living this out every day. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity was so powerful in its spreading early on. People were literally giving up their physical lives in the name of Jesus, and it was the greatest testimony that they could give. Now, understand this before I read this. These people were not committing suicide, they were not self harming, they were literally professing faith in Jesus Christ, and if other people wanted to torture them and put them to death, they willingly let other people do that so that they could continue to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't something that they did to themselves, but it was something they were willing to let other people do because they believed in Jesus Christ and were obeying his teachings. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9-12, through 12, Paul writes, and he's telling the church in Corinth, he says, Listen, we are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We are knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. And so the thing you need to take away from today's passage is, is that you don't need to sin. You definitely should stop sinning because it's so vitally important to you having a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are living in sin, you need to be willing to do whatever it takes to help you stop sinning. The great thing is, is that you don't have to cut off body parts in order to stop sinning because that would be painful and it would stink and it really wouldn't help you. But you should be willing to do anything in life, to, to, to stop anything, to cut off anything, to do away with anything in order to keep you from sinning. But the biggest thing we have to do is be as humble as little children. Allow Christ to come into our heart and lives, to cleanse us, to repent of our sins, to allow Jesus to cleanse us. Jesus is sufficiently able through the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse you, to cleanse your heart, to cleanse your mind, and make you a new creation to bring us out of sin. No sin is too great to be cleansed or rescued from. The real thing we need to do is put our personal life to death and let Jesus resurrect us into new creations so that one day we can be resurrected in eternity with all of his followers. But you have to be willing to let God do what he needs in order to transform you. You have to be as humble as little children to be like them and then also welcome them in. Do not allow yourselves to live in sin, but be willing to do whatever it takes 
to get rid of the sin in your life. All right? So the teaching is literal and it's figurative. We should be willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of the sin in our life because it really is better for us to enter into heaven with missing a hand or missing a foot or missing an eye than it would be for us to go to hell with a perfect, beautiful body. So that is literal in a sense, but it's not that we should be cutting them off ourselves and mutilating ourselves in order to stop sinning because all of that sin is in our hearts and lives, and that's the thing that Jesus has to deal with. All right, let me pray for you, and I'll let you go today. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity to serve you, to worship you, to read your word, and God, to just see how important it is for us to give ourselves to you. Help us to be as humble as children. Help us to love you, to be obedient, to be submissive, and to be innocent. Lord, help us to bring others in who are less than us, to love them, to care for them, to make sure that they are built up in ways that they can be served and, and Lord, that they can be cared for. Lord, help us to provide that for them. We love you today. We ask you to be with us all we do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thanks again for another week. We love you. We're praying for you. If we can't see you on campus, we catch us on Facebook, YouTube, and podcasts. We love you. We're praying for you. Have a great week.